Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. But first up, just a few seconds ago, the British Horse Racing Authority released the update, the annual update from its diversity in racing steering group. And just to take us through the ramifications and implications of that, I'm really pleased to welcome for the first time to Luck on Sunday studio, the head of the Diversity and Racing Steering Group, Rose Grizzell, who's been in the job, what, about a year now, Rose? Yeah, that's right. And how, how have you found it? How are you finding it? Uh, well, fantastic role. It's really, really great to work in racing. I've, had a, um, I've been involved with racing my whole life, but from um, not a career base. So it's fantastic to be in the role. And um, it's been a really, really positive year so far. Um, we've made some uh, good progress, but um, now a really exciting position of where we are at the moment. We'll come to some of the, uh, the gains that you've made in the last year in, in a few moments' time. But let's talk about this action plan, because it has just been released in the last few seconds. The Diversity and Racing Steering Group was set up in, in 2017. You were brought on board a year ago. The action plan now moving forward. What are the, what are the key strategic points that you, you're picking up for the, for the year ahead? So the action plan um, across the whole of racing um, was actually published in July last um, year. And this is an annual update really to mm -hmm. highlight um, really to highlight some of the um, benefits to racing as well, why um, we feel that diversity and inclusion it could be really beneficial to racing, but also to um, give a bit of a review of what we've been doing the last year, as well as to setting out the plans and our kind of more of a strategic direction um, for the next year or so. So the action plan was so broad across the whole sport, we've now got to a position where we've got um, you know, some key priorities that are initial deliverables, because mm. obviously we can't achieve everything overnight. So um, we've got those set now. Let's take them, take them one by one. First key area, raising awareness for the importance of diversity and inclusion across racing through industry-wide events and a digital awareness and engagement campaign. Just give me an idea of some of those industry-wide events and, and how that's going to manifest itself. Yeah, so this is really um, um, from a point of view that to drive this area forward, we really need a really collaborative approach across the whole sport. This can't just be led by the BHA or different stakeholders. Actually, everyone has a role to play. So a lot of the work we've been doing across the last year has been to engage um, industry stakeholders into the conversation why it's important um, for racing to focus on this area and how it can benefit racing as well. And we want to continue to do that. So having different events to educate and raise awareness, but also to... Um, empower the uh, the industry to take their own responsibilities mm -hmm. to say how they can drive this agenda forward as well. So what type of events are we, are we looking well, at? Well, we're, we're looking at, um, you know, uh, I guess engagement events. They might be um, just anyone to get 
people together to have that conversation, start the conversation, get ideas together on, on different subjects, whatever that may be. Um, you know, we've got a number of different uh, elements um, under the umbrella of diversity and inclusion. It's a very broad subject. So actually the events will be focusing on specific things and looking to see how we can start the conversation, to see where the actions may be from that. Okay, and collating and evaluating cross-industry diversity data, publishing where possible to build a clear evidence base for decisions. Is that trying to understand the makeup of the sports constituents, the makeup of the people who come into horse racing, and how do you go about getting that data? Well, that's the that's the big question, really. So we believe that with all these things, you really have to monitor what you're doing to ensure you're actually making an impact, you're making progress. I mean, currently, the data with regard to diversity and inclusion across the sport is limited to a degree because uh -huh. no one's really looked at it before. So um, we want to do a piece of work to establish what currently exists, um, identifying some of the gaps, you know, what are the issues. Um, we have good data around um, female jockeys, for example, in to some degree, but with regard to looking at um, ethnicity in the sport, we have no data on that at the mm. moment. So that piece of work will be looking across the board to see how we can collect that information so, so you, we can you, you have no idea as things stand the makeup of a race day crowd for example in exactly. terms of their yeah. ethnicity yeah so obviously we can we can make uh, assumptions but um there's never been a substantial piece of work to um actually understand that we know it's an issue because you can go to a race course and have a have a look mm -hmm. um but um, we feel that if we're able to start to monitor things, we can then start to set targets and start to really um, monitor the progress that we make as an industry. Uh, I mean, and how will you do that? What are the mechanics of doing that? Well, th that's what we have to work out. So we, it might be through, um, you know, one-off uh, pieces of work every few years, or it might be starting to embed. Um, you know, uh, collecting information through um, the tools that we have in place at the moment through licenses, for example. So that's what we have to work out. And we'd, we'll be working with an external kind of agency to establish how we go about doing that. Your third plank is looking at ways to create a culture of inclusivity in racing through the development and publishing of best practice toolkits and case studies for the industry, as well as aligning with wider campaigns such as Stonewall's Rainbow Laces. Let's just talk about the culture of inclusivity in racing. What do you think the culture in racing is at the moment from, from the perspective of, of your role? I think it depends on who you talk to, to be honest. Um, I think people who work in the industry have, um, or the majority of people, I would say, feel that there is a really big racing family. Um, mm. You know, it's quite... Um, you know, people very much look out for each other. You know, you can have that real team spirit in a yard where everyone is um, part of, you know, getting that win, making sure your horse is, you know, being the best it can be. Um, however, in maybe from outside, from certain communities, it may not feel like an inclusive environment. Um, you know, if potentially there may be barriers around cost or even you know dressing up to go on the race course um, there's been a piece of research done recently around uh, f from the wider public looking at perceptions of racing and it seemed to be released but um, one of the key things that that identified was the fact that it's seen as exclusive elitist to a degree so that's kind of some that's the kind of thing that we need to learn from and address and see to think how can we how can we adapt and see that we are welcoming to all? Because it is, you know, from an internal point of view, we are 
we feel it's very inclusive. How do you think we can adapt? I mean, you've now been in the, in the role a year, so you must have gathered so many different thoughts from so many different people, and it's very difficult to kind of draw all these strands together. But for you, how do you think the sport can adapt? I think there are lots of little things that we can do. Um, and I think it's, a, it's, it's almost slightly just changing the language, changing the conversation to broaden our sport to a, a wider population. Um, we're not reaching as many people as we could do. I mean, we've seen some fantastic um, stories already um, in 2019 demonstrating how our diverse participants are kind of reaching new audiences. So if you think about some of the main um, media stories that hit racing, hit sorry, hit mainstream media outside of the racing media this year, we've got uh, Bryony Frost and... Um, Paisley Park, with the Emma, trained by Emma Lavelle um, and Andrew, owned by Andrew Gemmell at Cheltenham. Um, that was a hugely positive story. Mm. Had Hayley um, Turner at Ascot and, of course, Khadija Mella. All these stories were really positive stories for racing that hit um, the newspapers outside of racing, which were interesting for people who may not have actually mm. otherwise um, you know, raised an eyelid to um, an eyebrow to... Um, racing before but in essence doesn't racing have to be in a position whereby for example Khadija Mella woman from um, minority ethnic background is riding a winner albeit in a in a charity race whereby Bryony Frost is emblematic not just of somebody succeeding against the odds but representative of a whole raft of women who are doing extremely well in the sport isn't one of the reasons that these have garnered so much media coverage is because they are dare I say, not one-offs but they are unusual events where in fact you want to make them usual events and if they are usual events are they guaranteed to get the same amount of media mm. coverage uh, potentially not but at the moment we're seeing huge interest in women's sport um you know in society mm. uh, the biggest uh, viewing videos of the Women's World Cup. Um, and also we're seeing investment in that area, um, huge sponsorship in, in, in women's sport at the moment. So in the current climate of things, I think there is a real interest in these female um, participants at, from, from the wider uh, public. Um, so I think it's a real opportunity for racing um, at the moment, and we should really, um, you know, take it. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. Delighted to say that Neil Channing and Emma Lavelle are back in the Luck on Sunday studio. I was going to say regulars both, you pretty much are now. Um, you alright, Neil? Oh, yeah, sorry, I'm just getting a snack. Midway through, well, it's been mm. a tough week for you, so you need all the sustenance you can get. Has been, yeah. Emma, welcome back. Thank you. Great Thank to you, see you. I'm, it's always nice when somebody comes in flush with, with success. It's been, a, <laughs> it's been a pretty good few weeks, hasn't it? Oh, it's been amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's, um, we've just had, we've had just a brilliant time of it. Would it, be, would it be fair to say that in the last, say, five, ten years, you've had periods where things have threatened to really take off and just haven't quite, and now it really is taking off? Yeah, I think um, everything changed for us. Uh, we'd spent 18 years renting a yard and we'd grown. We'd started with six horses and, and just built up and built up and, and, and had some great times. You know, we'd had a couple of festival winners. And, and, but we would get to sort of Christmas time and, um, and I think 
where, how we developed the yard at that stage, there were um, boxes probably a little bit too close to each other, and then we had a big issue with oilseed rape come the springtime, mm -hmm. um, and our form would just sort of slightly fall off a cliff. And, and it was depressing and frustrating, and as you say, we were nearly getting there and then just not quite. Um, and then we were lucky enough, three and a half years ago, um, Benita Racing Stables came on the market, um, and in its 125-year history, it was the third time that it had ever been on the market. So it was just about timing, mm. and um, and it was it was just brilliant. And so um, Barry and I, with a bit of help from from a few others, um, managed to get organised and buy um, uh, Benita and and. Uh, touch wood, apart from a few scary moments on the way through, haven't looked back. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do, and it's a brave thing to do, and you're putting yourself under a, presumably a fair bit of financial exposure and risk as well. Um, but I guess you just have to take the plunge at some point. Yeah, we'd reach a crossroads, really, which was, um, you know, we, we've had some fantastically loyal supporters um, all the way through. But we'd got to a point where where we were we were stuck. We were either going to be getting smaller and and completely altering how our business was, or we we took the plunge and thought, right, let's try and give this a, a real go, and and that's what we did. And and it was it was hard. My God, there were some moments where you think, what are we doing? And and we sort of we we were trying to save money in the move. So Barry and I thought that we could kind of do it between us, driving the tractors backwards and forwards between yards and. Um, we thought, oh, well, we won't use um, professional house movers and um, thought we would do it and load the horse boxes and drive mm. the stuff. Oh, my God, I take my, well. <laughs> I take my hat off to these professional <laughs> movers. It was, um, yeah, there were moments of, uh, of thinking, what are we doing? But I am a dab hand at unplugging and plugging back in washing machines. And you know, I learned a lot of new things. <laughs> I, you know, I, I get stressed out enough moving half a mile across suburban London from one terraced house to another. Never mind moving an entire farm. I don't know what you mean? Yeah, I, I mean, if you want to come around and look at our washing machine later, <laughs> I can fit you at about eleven thirty. I don't know how they work. I just know which bit goes into which bit. <laughs> um, it's been a joy to to watch the horses coming through this season. I mean, we knew that Paisley Park was a champion, but at Newbury, it looked like he could just take the season again, much as he did last year. How's he doing? He's great. Touchwood. He's 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 come out of that race really well. It was an interesting one. Last year, we were on this, this big journey um, where we started out in handicaps and he just got better and better and we just really enjoyed the ride. This year, um, you kind of you had the champion in the yard and it was about trying to produce him that he was fit enough to do himself justice. Um, but we were producing him for a, for a grade two you know, proper race mm. rather than a, a 140 rated horse that was patently a lot better than that, having his first run in a handicap. And um, and I think um, Barry rides him every day. He's done an amazing job with the horse. And um, uh, you know, even though he had to you know get his head down and gallop to the line, once he got his head in front, he pricked his ears again, and and he's come out of the race really well. Did Barry always think that he was a potential champion? Um. So he'll say definitely yes, Obviously. because um, and, and but he's not here. So. <laughs> but the reason that he has every right, in fairness, to say definitely yes is because when um, we bought him for the from the Land Rover sales at Goffs and. Um, uh, 
Barry, Jerry Hogan and I will go and look at all the horses between us and then we'll make our shortlist selection of which ones we like and, mm -hmm. and then that list gets a bit shorter and then we discuss our top three. Now sometimes you can buy your top three and sometimes you can't depending on who we've got, who's wanting to buy horses with us at the time. And uh, without doubt from the very beginning as an unbroken three-year-old he was Barry's number one of his top three. So that's why he can claim, he can claim <laughs> bragging rights on Paisley Park from the very beginning. Now he was in our top three, but for Barry he was his, his number one. And that's the kind of data we'd like access <laughs> to, isn't it? Are you still, when you go and, you know, you have a top three and whatever, are, are you buying for a specific owner generally now, or are you having a bit of a punt and then trying to find who you're gonna get to take it off you? So, um, so, I suppose from, from starting out, mm. we've never been really on spec buyers. We've mm. always bought to order. There might be the odd horse that we'd have, but um, I always felt that that was a, that was a, a risk mm. that I didn't want to, to take going through from, from the very beginning, and I would rather buy something for, for an order. Mm. So, he, so um, although, as I say, the odd horse we might buy on spec, it, it's, it's a very rare thing for us to do it that way. So Andrew Gemmell, who everybody knows now because he's such a fantastic character, he's <coughs> lived and enjoyed this so much, is the man who is the, the fortunate man owning, owning Paisley Park. And he did give you an order of sorts, didn't he, in this, in this case? He did. Um, so, uh, so we'd had some success for Andrew already. And, and Andrew said, right, I, um, you know, I, I'm going to you know, throw 100,000 at this and go and buy a store horse. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing, this is brilliant. <laughs> and um, so we went and had a look at, at all the horses in the same way as, as, as we would, and we had a couple of other orders. Anyway, um, so I said to Andrew, right, you know, we found the, the horse that we think would be absolutely tailor-made for you, and we're going to go and bid on it. He's like, brilliant. So um, we bid uh, up to, you know, he bid away and, and he went up and ours was the winning bid at 62,000 euros. So I ring Andrew and I go, Andrew, you know, oh my God, you wouldn't believe it. We bought the horse. It's so exciting. And he's like, oh, brilliant, brilliant. How much? And I said, um, you know, 62,000 euros. And he went, oh, well, why 62,000 euros? <laughs> this, is, this is owners all over, isn't it? Disappointed that you've saved him 38 grand. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, we spent it later. Yeah. But he... Um, he just, uh, I think there was at that stage, um, Andrew will probably deny this completely, but at that uh -huh. stage there was that whole kind of excitement that, you know, I spent 100,000 on a horse. Uh -huh. and, and actually we didn't manage to do that. We managed to spend 62,000 on the horse. But look, he, was just, he was just a smashing horse. Uh -huh. And, and the beauty is now, this season, it's not a, it's not a one-horse stable. That's always the danger, isn't yeah. it, that you end up yeah. becoming a, a one-horse stable. And to win a race like the Ladbrokes Trophy with an unexposed seven-year-old like Derasha counter, that must, have, that must have given you a real depth of satisfaction. It did. It was a very different emotion going into the race because, you know, with Paisley you were going in thinking, you know, you've got the champion, you want to keep him there and, and the pressure there. For this, um, when um, when Durash Counter won at, at Newbury last year, um, he looked and then went to Chepstow and we thought, God, he is a really nice horse, this. We deliberately didn't go to Cheltenham to the festival with him last season because we thought mentally he wasn't ready for it and we went to Utoxeter with him. Um, and he won the, the valuable novice handicap up there and, and our thoughts immediately were, right, we are going to gear this season to the Labrook. He's got every chance of keeping improving, and this is what we're going to go for. Um, and he had a prep run in a hurdle um, up at Utoxeter, which he definitely needed. Um, you know, he was he was just 
we kind of had started to treat him as though he was a really as a really nice horse and probably mm. just been a little bit sort of too easy on him at home and 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 he's a he's a fighter you know he's a real grafter and uh, we just did a bit more with him and he went into Newbury in the best form he could possibly have gone into um, the race in and and so at that point there's nothing more you can do and it's just is he good enough and in a 24 runner race um, over you know three and a quarter miles is he going to get a bit of luck in running um, and and look he answered that both ways that was yeah you know he is good enough um, he was ridden by Ben Jones first claimer to win the race I think since Dan Fort won mm. on, on Cogent back in, in 93 serious talent in the saddle Neil I know you're someone who's talked a lot in the past about how as a punter Oh yeah! If it, you can spot it, a good claimer before you, the rest of the market realise Ben Jones, yeah, Ben Jones, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't say I did it there, although. Uh, um, but yeah, I think you know. Sometimes, I don't. I actually think the market doesn't really factor in jockeys very much at all, generally. But I think, uh, particularly, you know, with claimers, you can you can get a little edge there, maybe. Uh, presumably. The logic follows that if the market doesn't factor in the effect mm. of jockeys and you believe that there is a significant effect of jockeys, then you can get an edge. Well, there definitely is. I mean, you know, you can go through and look at, you know, uh, uh, you know, actual over-expected for everybody and you can see that some jockeys, you, uh, you make more of a profit or less of a loss normally because obviously it's level stakes over many rides generally. Every jockey, mm. you know, if you bet them blindly, you'd make a, a loss, but... Uh, uh, you can, yeah, you can find the odd nugget. And and if if I'm not very much mistaken, John Whitley, who's released the jockey mm. ratings in, in his pu- publication for many years, and <coughs> not that many people mm. widely subscribe, yeah, but the ones that do get well rewarded, I'm pretty sure he was someone who flagged up Adam Wedge as a as a mm. jockey who was on an upward curve when no one was talking about him. And looks like you've got in there just in time. Yeah, look, Adam. Adam's been fantastic. He comes in every week. Um, schools. He's such a straightforward person in, to deal with, and and he's a horseman. You know, he's he's great over an obstacle, and he's a real horseman. Um, and and you just you feel relaxed when you're watching him mm-hmm. riding the horses. You know, if 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 they're good enough, he'll be in the right place for them to go and do what they should be doing. And and it was it was a shame, um, a big shame for him that he didn't get the the pleasure of riding um, the Rasha Counter at Newbury. Um, but a real credit to him that he was one of the first people to text and say well done after the yeah. race um, because it was look, you have good horses going in different directions and, and Evan Williams is his main his main yard and has given him obviously lots of winners and lots of and his first his first grade one at Sandown weekend before last yeah. or last weekend, last weekend yeah. um, so um, you know it was only right that he went to Newcastle to ride Silver Streak and that's what happens sometimes for jockeys but but having done the work on Rasher, it was mm. it was tough on him not to get the reward at, at Newbury. I presume he'll be his ride, yeah, in the yeah. future. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he'll. The plan is for him to go to Cheltenham for the Cotswold Chase, and see, you know, is which route we go. Is he is he good enough to be running in those conditions races, or is he a handicapper? And and you know, so long as Adam's available, that will be his. His his ride. Does that not just tell you whether you go for the Gold Cup or the Grand National? I know. I feel too. I feel too <laughs> I mean, in awe to be able to say, "Do I go for the Gold Cup or the horse?" But um, yeah, or exactly both. that. Exactly yeah. that. Yeah. I think unlikely both. But I think mm. that is that that is the the race that will tell us what our season mm. does from there on. Will he get a national entry? Um, we will talk about it. I think he's probably more likely to get an entry than not. 
You have to give it back. <laughs> it's a million pounds. Yeah, yeah. He's won I know. The and it just—he's—he's um, he's a very talented horse, and I—and I, absolutely, I hear that. And I think you know, I'm sure we will give him an entry. Um, but we looked after him by not going to Cheltenham last yeah. year with, with Newbury being the the goal, and so you know he. My worry with him was that he might just bubble over in the preliminaries at Newbury, and it just showed how much he'd grown up that he didn't bother at all about the parade and behaved himself impeccably. So, so yeah, you know, he's definitely growing up. Uh, this programme is not and never has been a stable tour, but you have got a couple of really <laughs> exciting youngsters, and it would be remiss of me not to talk about them. One of them was written by Adam Wedge at Exeter. That was uh, not at Exeter, I should say, at Cheltenham. Hang in there. We'll have a look at this at the November meeting. Uh, this is a pretty exciting prospect for an owner who's investing pretty heavily, Tim Sider, as well. Yeah, he's, um, he's a brilliant little horse, this. And um, he, uh, Tim said it himself at the, at the time, you know, he's not big, hang in there, he isn't big. And, and, um, and we, um, you know, Tim was a little bit dubious about the fact that, based on that, you know, was he the right horse to get involved in? And, and thank goodness he did. And, and in fact, he shares him with, um, with Andrew. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it was a great day. And as you say, for him to, to win for, for Tim, he's, he's invested so much in, in racing generally, not just in, in, uh, in the horses, mm -hmm. you know, time and effort. And, and I think um, you know, that's, what he's, that's what he's doing it for, is to get to those nice horses winning at Cheltenham. So you work back from the Supreme Novices with him? Yeah, I think he'll go. Um, the plan is to run him in the Tolworth, mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> in a way, my question mark about him is: is he an is he a genuine two miler or Time actually? Time suggests that he might be. Yeah, uh, you know, or is he a horse that um, that wants two and a, or will will stay two and a half and be better over that? In fairness, his first run in a novice hurdle in Ireland or a maiden hurdle in Ireland, when he finished second, was over two and a half. Mm -hmm. So you know he's going to get the trip. But he's a strong traveller, which means that, um, you know, if he does stay two miles, it'd be great. Just watching him in the screen behind Neil there, and he's just I very rarely see a horse bounce into back, in, back into the winner's enclosure like that. And that's him. The eyeballs were popping out. That's him. He is, he is just a ball of energy. Yeah. He's an absolute ball of energy, apart from when he's in his stable um, at home. And um, he puts his head out over the door. He's so interested in everything that goes on all the time. But if you stand there, he'll just rest his head on your shoulder there and expect you to give him a lot of cuddles. <laughs> so he's the, so he's he's the kindest well. horse. But he is, the minute he's <coughs> out of that door, he knows that he is there to, for a reason. And he just, he loves it. Absolutely loves it. Every morning. I, I, I want to just... Um, extend my, my sympathies to, to, to Gary Moore and his team, who lost a lovely horse yesterday mm -hmm. at Cheltenham, knocked Nanas. And, and Jamie Moore posted on, on Twitter last night that you guys always saw the bit of a lunatic on the race course, but he and they would posted some pictures with his, his kids in the stable with the, yeah. with the horse patting the horse. And it was, it was clearly quite, quite poignant, but yeah. it just sort of showed that the horse you see at home and the horse you see on the race course can be two completely different things. Absolutely, absolutely. I saw Jamie at Cheltenham yesterday after, you know, afterwards, and and you know he said to me, you know, we're jockeys and we shouldn't be sort of you know showing all that emotion. You know, he was he was so visibly upset by by that because he rode the horse every day at home, and I think actually you know that's that's how it should be. Mm. You know, we care about these horses, and and I think it's um, it's 
you never want to have to see people be upset about it. Mm. But to see, you know, Jamie there and, and as you say, showing pictures of, mm. of what he's like at home, you know, it just shows just how much it matters. Well, it gives it, it, gives it meaning and context, mm. doesn't it, Neil? It's yeah. not just abstracted. It's not just another number or name. Yeah, I don't, I don't see why he should worry about showing some emotion in that situation. Mm. That seems perfectly normal. Let's talk about a, another one of your your promising young horses, and then I promise I'll stop. <laughs> uh, no, Eclair, keep going, Eclair keep going. I enjoyed this victory at Exeter. He's a um, very nice-looking horse for a start, and it's nice when they put the performance together with, with, with their physique, uh, running in the colours of, um, of Dominic Burke. Yep, absolutely. And he, in fact, he and, and Tim share him. Um, he will head for the Chalo after this. You can see he's, he is a very big unit mm. um, and he'll be a horse to go over fences um, next season. Um, he's still got to strengthen. He's a relentless galloper that loves soft ground um, and he's come on a lot for that run. Um, he could be anything. He really could be anything. Neil, have you, have you made hay while the Lavelle sun has been shining? Actually, the... The, I was going to say the Hennessy. Oh, I will still say the Hennessy. The Labrix. Uh, oh, okay. I know you're a corporate um, man, really. <laughs> Deep in your soul. I've sort of gone off Labrooks recently. Um, yeah, I so nearly backed your horse there. Actually, that was quite frustrating. It was he, he was uh, he was quite a bigger price on the exchanges than with the bookmakers. That was the only thing that put me off. So I can't say I have totally made hay. In fact, it's been quite frustrating because I, I was thinking the whole morning I was going to do that, but uh, yeah. Hats off to you. Fair play. Thanks, Nick. <coughs> Are you someone who follows trainers by hand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had arguments with James Willoughby about the, the uh, you know, he doesn't believe in trainers being out of form uh, because he says there's so much noise in the statistics and, uh, you know, you can never tell when the end of a bad run is just coming or the yeah. start of a good run or whatever. Um, but I, I think, you know, it makes sense to me that each horse is not totally an individual. There's a correlation. You know, if you're, when you had trouble, you know, with the oilseed rape stuff, it, it wasn't a coincidence that one horse would run badly and then another horse would run badly because there was an underlying reason behind it. Uh, when all of your horses are running well at the same time, uh, I don't think that each is an individual, uh, you know, uh, event the, 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 there's a connection between it. You're doing something right. They're getting the right kind of feed or whatever. I don't know what you know. I mean, I don't know anything about looking after horses, but um, I, I I do think that it's a correlated thing. And I, I, don't, I don't know. James is probably if he's watching it. I know we're talking about head chopping. He probably doesn't care anyway. But um, <laughs> you know, he probably thinks that's a load of nonsense. But uh, I don't know. I stick to it. Well, well Emma, trainers at the time, if you're going through a a particularly good spell, you'll often hear a trainer say, I'm not doing anything different. The horses are just great. They look well. They're good in their coat. Then sometimes, a couple of years down the track, retrospectively, they can look back and go, well, actually, we were doing this. And mm. then they can kind of make yeah, sense. But do you think when you're in the day-to-day -day thrust of it, sometimes you don't really sense you're doing anything much different? I think, I think that um, look, horses being healthy is, is your first thing. You know, It doesn't matter what you're doing. If the horses aren't healthy, they're not going to be winning. And um, so I think that's your, your start-off point. Uh, I think you have, a, you have a routine, you have a system. It's not going to fit every horse, but it's going to fit the majority of them. Yeah. And I think once you find that and you know, um, uh, you know how, how they're working within that, then you're, you're pretty clear as to how, how, you know, how they're going to run or sure. how you expect them to run. Um, 
you know, you're nothing without your staff and you will go through stages of having very good staff that, that are all very good riders and I think that's a benefit and there will be times when when you might have you know, a weaker a group of staff and, and that can have a big um, impact on how they're running. And I think there's, um, you, look, you, never, you never stop learning. When you're on a roll and your horses are running well, mm -hmm. your handicap ratings are going up as well. Yes. You're mm -hmm. going to hit a point when your horses aren't well handicapped it won't be that they've they've gone out of form. It's just they're at a level that mm. they're not able to win at. Yeah. So I think it, it's multifactorial. That's the truth of it. Mm. And it isn't. It, that's why it's hard to pinpoint why your horses are running well. Bar if the horses are coughing, you know, they're unlikely to be running well. If they look great in, them, in themselves and they all look healthy, you're going to have a good chance. Well, one thing we do know about Cheltenham yesterday, and you were there, is that in order to win. Uh, that fixture you needed a horse who was not only healthy but super fit because the ground was really hard going and uh, we saw a, a return really to form from the grey warthog in the hands of David Noonan and yes he's swinging along quite merrily here but when Spirit of the Games comes to claim him after the last it looked all over um, but the Cheltenham Hill did its did its business again. I'm still trying to work out how Spirit of the Games managed to manage not to win this race, Neil. 700 to 1 in running, uh, Warthog hit at one stage. We try and pinpoint exactly when that might have been. Well, I would um, think it's after Bridget Andrews gets a good jump from Spirit yeah. of the Games at the last. Warthog looks like a spent force. I suppose around here you might, but I don't know, I never really would want to lay 700 to 1 up the hill at Cheltenham. This has got to be 100s here, hasn't he? Yeah. You don't even know he's going to finish in the frame. 200s now. Yeah. Somehow, amazing stuff. He, and, and also, David Noonan as well. I did a thing. Um, I'm afraid I, I, I was too timing you, Nick. I, I got invited on to the channel to do something on a Friday. Mm -hmm. um, I saw that. It was fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> thanks for that. Um, we, we have an open marriage. <laughs> and uh, Tom Scudamore was on. And I, actually, I was kind of meaning to. I'm quite a big fan of David Noonan. I, I sort of fancied he hadn't been having a great year. Really, I think he's had nine winners, um, and two of them were this week. Uh, and I don't know, you know, it seems like I thought he was going to be like really good when he sort of broke through a few years ago. I, mean, I think he still is really Maybe good. Maybe he is? No, I think he is really good, mm. but I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of his. But uh, I was sort of looking and thinking, well, has everyone kind of forgotten about him or what's going on there? Um, I, don't, I mean, obviously, David Pipe had a bit of a kind of rough couple of years, maybe, and he's having a lot better season this season. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was very glad. David Noonan looked delighted, didn't he, in jumping around all over the place. Well, I'm, I'm very glad that you've recognised... Oh, is he on? Are you I'm just very, about to well, ring I'm very glad, no, I'm very glad <laughs> that you've recognised that David Pipe has ah. turned it around somewhat, because he's on the line now. Oh, Morning, okay. David. Uh, morning, everyone. Thank you very much. Not at all, not at all. And it is, go it is going better this, this season, isn't it, than, than perhaps last season did, just to pick up Neil's point. Yeah, no, exactly. The previous two seasons, um, we had 45 winners now, so we, we beat last season's total yesterday. So, um, well, Christmas present. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, an extraordinary, wonderful performance from, uh, from the horse. But l let's talk about David Noonan, because we'll pick up the point that, that Neil was making. Sort of saying that you know he he'd been in a lot of people's thoughts as a as a potential future champion three or four years ago, and and to see him come back with a ride of that kind of verve and, and guile was was quite something. Yeah, no, he he gets on very well with um, with Warthog and um, you know works very well at Pond House. We've got David and we've got Tom Scudamore and um, 
yeah, you know, he gets on well with the horse. He seems to jump well for him. And but David's always been a, a very good jockey. Um, but, uh, you know, you need the horses to ride at the same time. And it's, it's hard for anyone to get rides nowadays, whoever you are. What do you think are his main attributes? Uh, he doesn't drink, which helps. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place uh, to start. Uh, yeah, he's, he, look, he's hard. He's hardworking, um, dedicated, um, strong in the finish, and, and, and good over an obstacle. So you know, he's got lots of lots of pluses. And when you saw the pair of them jump the last, you must have sort of walked away and thought, "Well, he's run a nice race." But there you go. I did. He hasn't been the strongest of finishes in the past, and uh, we were aiming to put two good runs together, basically, because last season. He won at Sandown first time out, and then his form mm-hmm. um, went wrong. Um, so I thought, yes, he's, he's run a good race. We're probably going to end up being swamped and being third or fourth. Um, and then for um, yeah, David Noon actually put his stick down halfway up the running um, and hands and heels, and um, he's, he's found another gear. And from from your perspective, what what do you hope for now? Presumably to keep this keep this consistency up? Did it make you think differently about what the horse wants in future? Uh, yes. Uh, we, we weren't... I mean, he's in the two-mile race as well. We weren't sure. Um, he, he finished weekly uh, in the bet victor, and we weren't sure if... Um, he hadn't had the ideal preparation. We had to cauterise his palate in the autumn, and it was a bit... We were chasing a little bit, so we weren't sure if he, you know, he hadn't quite got the trip. Um, he just got a bit tired in the, in the latter finish, uh, the latter stages. Um, so we debated which race we were going for. Um, luckily, we chose this one, um, and uh, it's worked out nicely. I hope you had a reasonable celebration last night. Obviously, David would have been on the water, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. No, um, David Newton came back to Pond House. It, it was quite enough. We, uh, we had the, the children here, we had Chinese, and a, and a few glasses of champagne. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. Now, everybody knows the election results. Thursday night into Friday morning, the Conservative Party was returned under Boris Johnson with a majority of 80, which was, I think, at the upper end of their expectations. Uh, The BHA have responded to the result of the general election and says... Uh, British Racing welcomes the clarity which the general election results and the majority Conservative government provides for our industry, particularly relating to Brexit. Over the next Parliament, our public affairs group will engage with all MPs and parties to outline British Racing's significant cultural and economic impact. It goes on to say, fundamental to our ambition, the next Parliament is to further grow British Racing's preeminent position within international racing. So essentially, the statement talks primarily about the effect of Brexit and a, a degree of, of certainty that might come from such a majority and truly sustainable and internationally competitive return from betting activity and enhancing our world-leading standards of equine welfare, which may, in fact, that final word be the most important one in that entire statement. Now, joining me to discuss, Emma Lavelle is still here, as is uh, Neil Channing, and also joined by Conservative MP Philip Davis, who has retained his seat in Shipley. Uh, Philip, well done. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, by how many votes was it an increased majority for you? It was. Uh, it went from uh, 4,600 to uh, about 6,200. 
And you have been a regular member of the all-party racing and bloodstock committee and indeed chaired it at, at one stage. Vice, I'm the vice chair. Well, I have been the vice chair. We'll have elections now in the new, in the new parliament. But it's uh, brilliantly chaired previously by Lawrence Robertson mm -hmm. and Conor McGinn. And I'm rather hoping that those two will carry on because they do a brilliant job. So Lawrence Robertson, just for, for clarity, is the Conservative MP for Tewkesbury. And Conor McGinn is the Labour MP for St Helens. And they both retained their seats as well. They did. And they do a brilliant job chairing the committee. So I, I hope they can be persuaded to carry on. And it's one thing I've observed going to uh, anything that is run by this committee in the Houses of Parliament. I don't know whether this occurs across all sports, but you see people from both ends of the political spectrum, and you're fairly far to the right of the political spectrum within British Parliament, and Conor McGinn would be fairly far to the left, getting on, getting on quite well through their shared love of the sport of horse racing. Yeah, we, we love horse racing, absolutely. We don't agree on everything politically, absolutely. And in a democracy, it would be boring if we all agreed with each other. But what we do agree with is that we were passionate about horse racing, wanted to succeed, um, and we put our political differences aside in order to try and work together to, to enhance horse racing. So niceties out of the way, why will horse racing benefit from an 80-strong Conservative majority? Well, I think uh, it'll benefit to start with because people now will be able to afford to own horses still. I mean, if, if Jeremy Corbyn had got in, Lord, nobody would be able to afford to own a racehorse. So I think it's, uh, it's good, it's a good, that's a good start, to be perfectly honest. At least we're going to have a strong economy. Um, but I think the BHA were right. Uh, having a majority government of any, of, any, of any shape gives some certainty. At least you know what you're dealing with. In the past, we've had small majorities. We've had, uh, we've had a hung parliament. We've had coalition governments. I think uh, when you get one party who's got a, a decent majority, I think it does bring that certainty that whether it's the BHA or businesses or whoever are looking for. So uh, I think that's they know what they're dealing with, um, and so I, you know, and I think that the Conservative Party generally is, is pro racing. I think B, the BHA need to develop better, more friends in Parliament. I think it's it's a bit threadbare at the moment as to how many MPs actually really care about horse racing. There aren't that many, unfortunately, and so some work needs to be done there. But I think, you know, broadly the the Conservative Party would be seen as pro-horse racing, and uh, and I, I hope that continues. Is, isn't that in part your job as a great enthusiast and advocate for the sport to try and say to some of your MPs, well, come racing with me, yeah, absolutely. enjoy the sport? I mean, it, we, we took a BHA, as far as I can tell, do quite an effective job at trying to get in yeah, to Parliament, but there's only so much they can do. Sure. Yes, no, there is, and you can't, you can't force people to be interested in something they're not interested in. Uh, you know, uh, of, of course not. And, and MPs are busy people, and they've all got particular interests, and and, and so it's not. I'm not saying it's an easy task at all. It, it's not. Um, but yes, we've all got any all of us who love horse racing. have got a responsibility to try and pass on that enthusiasm to other people. And and you know, in, in many respects, the best way is for t to take people racing because it's. I don't really know anybody who's had a day at the races, who says at the end of it, you know, I didn't really enjoy that. I mean, it's very rare. I mean, most people who go racing absolutely love it. And so we just need to get more people going. I'll come to the Brexit issue in a minute and how that might impact the sport. Neil Channing, I'll come to you. Uh, you were campaigning quite extensively for, for Jeremy Corbyn mm. during the course of the, the election, particularly here in, in Ealing. And I know you're very passionate not, about Not it. so much in Ealing, actually, which is a very quite a safe seat these days. I, I was mostly in Kensington, actually. But, uh, which was one of the closest votes in the country. Absolutely, yeah. Emma Denko just, just losing out in, in, in Kensington. What's your perspective on what Phillips just said about this result and the implications for... Well, for, I mean, first of all, obviously, the, the idea that, uh, uh, you know, a Labour government would have 
crash the economy is ludicrous <laughs> when we've had an economy that's been completely uh, murdered by uh, first by the coalition and then by uh, the Tory government. But I mean, I you know, you kind of built built up this program a little bit as being a kind of a big dust up between me and Philip. Well, one uh, tweet, one tweet. Well, the odd one. I mean, one I got tweet. quite a lot of interaction on Twitter from people that wouldn't normally, you know, sort of saying, "Why don't you go and you know land one on him?" Um, <laughs> and uh, we and need I, to swap seats. Well, I, know, I know you're not that kind of man. I, I'm not, and so I've got, be, I've got a bit of a cold anyway. <laughs> if I was going to be doing any fighting, I'd like to at least have had a bit of sleep this week first. But, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, in terms of the sport and the health of the sport uh, and the idea that, uh, you know, if we'd have made a slightly fairer tax regime uh, for the top 5% of the population, they wouldn't be able to afford racehorses is clearly ludicrous. Uh, you know, they, they, it, it, there's not many people that are sort of saying, oh, my God, I can only just afford to pay 450 grand for this jumps horse. Uh, and uh, God help me if my, uh, my marginal rate of tax climbs by a tiny amount because I move into a slightly higher bracket. I mean, I would have said from the point of view of the health of the sport, uh, what we really need is more people betting on it. Uh, you know, the, the, the population of people that are betting on horse racing is ageing all the time. Uh, and, you know, we're, we, we're going through a massive consumer credit crisis. Uh, the whole country, you know, we had all this stuff about austerity and the debt and everything. Uh, what's happened in this country is there's been a transference of public debt to private debt. Everybody's mortgaged up to the hilt. You know, quantitative easing pushed up house prices. Everybody started borrowing money to go on holiday and buy new cars and whatever. Uh, I, I think, you know, people don't have as much cash in their pocket. From my kind of former occupation of playing poker, which I did a lot really 10 years ago, uh, when I go and play poker now, which is, you know, rarer, uh, I don't see the same people splashing around with two or three grand in a game because it's not so easy for them to just kind of stick it on the credit card and not tell the missus. Uh, so I think from a sort of gambling point of view, uh, most people are, you know, it's less easy for people to be gambling in a big way. Um, the BHA thing, though, and Brexit, I sort of, um, I, I found the whole story in the Racing Post kind of odd, really. They seem to be quite celebratory, which I, I don't really understand the idea that this gives us total certainty. I mean, we're going to move into a transition period. Uh, but there's a good chance that by the end of that transition period, we don't um, get a deal with the EU and um, that we end up with a no-deal Brexit. That could still happen. Um, so I don't sort of necessarily buy that this has given us total certainty in the sport. Philip, if there's a no-deal Brexit, what are the implications <clears throat> for racehorse movement? We can't really get a handle on that at the moment. Well, I, I always think that in the end, common sense applies. And it's in everybody's interests. Um, in the EU and in the UK, that horses can move, that we, we can run our horses in France, that fe that French can run their horses in the UK and, and Ireland and everything. And I think when, when, when everybody has the same desired outcome, then it doesn't seem to me to be too much to expect that that outcome will happen. I think where you have difficulties is where people have got different priorities. And, you know, if, for example... Um, you know, the Irish were desperate to stop us from running in their races, but they wanted to run in ours, then there might be an, an issue. But as far as I can see, everybody wants the same outcome. So when everybody wants the same outcome, why on earth would that outcome not happen? And are you aware of the plans in place to to bring about to, or continue a tripartite agreement with France? Yeah, I mean, I mean the, again, the BHA have done a very good job. They've been lobbying government ministers. We all, we all, we all have that are, are interested in horse racing. Um, you know, the, the, the all-party group has been doing so too. So the, the government are well aware of the issues. 
uh, and the fact that we we want the the uh, that free movement of horses being uh, being able to to continue so that people can race in each other's countries. Um, and as as far as I'm aware, the the, um, the the government are well on with those discussions. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, betting because Neil was talking about you know this is this is the the lifeblood of the sport. Mm. How much money is bet on it? Mm. You have been. Um, a backbencher, uh, the back of an ad- administration which has um, taken fixed odds betting terminal stake sizes down to two pounds, which has led to um, hundreds, if not thousands, of, of betting shop closures, which has in turn had a knock-on correlation sig- and causation, Nick. significant impact on the sport. Gone. Well, I mean, you know, clearly uh, it, there are a lot of betting shops opened in this country. You know, for example, Waterloo Station. Mm-hmm. There used to be a William Hill one side of the road, a William Hill the other side of the road. That's clearly ludicrous. It was just a way of circumnavigating the four machines in each shop thing. Uh, and the second that uh, you know it went down to two pounds, there's no need to have two of them there. But uh, you know, there's a, there's a reason that there's lots of reasons that betting shops are closing in this country, and it, it, you know that includes the thing I mentioned earlier that less and less people are interested in racing. But of course, the main reason that betting shops are closing in this country is the internet. You know, mm. people bet online now; uh, they have access to you know debit cards and whatever, and they you know people betting in cash in betting shops. Has been declining, you know, for the last twenty years, and uh, that, you know, that's a big factor in the shops closing. So, therefore, did it matter what Neil's saying? Well, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, the Fobtis no, didn't make any difference. The Fobtis yeah, clearly absolutely. made a big difference, but it's not the one sole factor. Right? Should we move beyond <coughs> the Fobtis argument now? Is that is that what you're saying? We should just see beyond that now. Well, you, exactly, you, fought, you, you that, fought quite hard on behalf of the well, bookmakers I, I, to, to, to retain well, the I, I, I fought on, but it wasn't necessarily on behalf. It, it seemed to me ludicrous that you would pick out just betting shops when you can play exactly the same games, uh, exactly the same games online for unlimited stakes and unlimited prizes. Why, why pick on betting shops? But look, that argument's over and done with. It's you know that is why lots of betting shops have closed. Mm. But as far as I'm aware, that that argument's done and dusted. Nobody, I don't think, is going to argue to resurrect fixed odds betting terminals. So we've now got to actually deal with the landscape that we're in. You know, it's no good look, looking back on it. It's that we are where we are now. We've got a new chair this week, the campaign for, for responsible gambling as well. Um, how do you see the government approaching responsible gambling and how is that going to impact on horse racing? I think the government, quite rightly, will expect more from the bookmakers. I think the bookmakers have been uh, very slow to deal with the, the issues uh, about problem gambling. And I think, uh, I think, I think bookmakers have been slow on, on lots of things. They, they, you know, they, they need to raise their game. They, I think they are. I think most people would accept that the bookmakers now are doing much more, that, you know, they're massively increasing the amount that they pay towards helping with problem gambling, which is quite right. Uh, they're taking it much more seriously right across the board. I think everybody would uh, now acknowledge that, in, including some of its former uh, critics like Lord Chadlington, uh, who's done a lot of work in the House of Lords on this. He would, I think, be the first to say that the bookmakers really are now stepping up. They've still got a lot more to do. I think they've probably got more to do than they think. Um, but I think it's wider than just the, the problem. I think bookmakers for too long have been seen as uh, faceless corporations who just want to try and screw as much money out of people as possible. Um, and I think they've got, to, they've got to be much more on the side of the customer. They've got to build a reputation for actually looking after And you've worked in betting shops? My mum owned a betting shop, which is where mm. my passion for uh, horse racing and betting 
comes from. I was sort of brought up with, with that, and, and that's, why, that's why I'm very passionate about it. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel, Dubai. Well, I'm delighted to welcome as my special guest this week to Luck on Sunday, the chair of the British Horse Racing Authority. With an illustrious background in sport and sports administration, she has competed at Olympic level for England, for the UK, and has also been one of the sport's most important administrators. Anne-Marie Phelps, welcome. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. And great to have you here. I'm sure you were listening to that conversation with great oh, interest yes, between, the, between <laughs> Philip Davis and Neil Channing. And yeah. I suppose just goes to show occasionally what an unwieldy beast horse racing can mm. be. Coming from a background in rowing and, and professional sport yourself, how have you found it so far? Um, well, A, I think it's a fantastic sport. I love it. Um, it's a fantastic product. It's full of wonderful people who are incredibly passionate. But it is complex. There mm. are more stakeholders in this sport than I think I've seen in any other sport, including sports that have, you know, multiple disciplines. Um, and, and so there's a lot of chairmen, there's a lot of chief execs, there's a lot of committees, there's a lot of working groups, you know, and it does add complexity. And we, we try to simplify it down to a tripartite system where we've got the BHA, the horsemen and the racecourses. Actually, just look at the horsemen on their own. You know, it, it's an incredibly complex sort of network of people who work for each other, who mm -hmm. are reliant on each other, and, you know, sometimes they agree and sometimes they don't agree, and that's, that's fine, that's natural. Are you by nature a, a conciliatory... I hope so. Boss, <laughs> chair. I hope so. I hope... My, my view is that, you know, we will only make progress if we do things together, whatever sport and whatever sector we're working in. And there's a wonderful African saying about if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together or mm -hmm. something. I'm paraphrasing. You know, but if we want to take the sport forward, we actually do have to work together and, and be unified in some way. And, and we've seen that. We've seen when racing makes real progress over things like the levy and the big change there a few years ago. That was done with everybody working together, with everybody on message, with everybody driving it and accepting there's going to be some change. Take me back to the beginning and where your interest in in racing began. I know you had a you had a, a casual interest in racing mm. through a, through a flatmate early on, didn't you? Yeah. So my my very good friend, um, still my best friend, uh, her father owned National Hunt Horses, um, and so all the way through my sort of university and then early twenties, um, we followed their various horses. The most famous of whom I hope that um, she won't mind me saying was Little Polvier, mm. who Mike. Her father famously sold six weeks before the Grand National oh, when it won. Word. So, uh, so we lived through that sort of mm. highs and lows. But um, so, I, so probably that was the first real introduction to going to races. Mm -hmm. um, but my family are all Irish. We have a family farm, um, livestock was dairy now livestock in uh, Wexford. You know, racing's never far away from. Mm. The, you know, the Irish background either. And, you know, growing up, racing was on television every weekend. It was always on. So it's always sort of been there in the peripheries. I, I've been racing occasionally throughout my life as a goer, race goer. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say I was a committed race goer or massive racing fan, but I really enjoy the sport. But it's as a former professional athlete turned serious sports administrator yeah. where your skills and expertise are required. Having competed to Olympic level, having been a world champion rower, um, does that give you empathy with the, with the stakeholders, with the participants involved with the sport, do you think? Um, probably less than you'd think. Um, 
Well, no, that, that's, that's unfair. The empathy, yes, probably less in terms of understanding mm. and experience. So I don't suppose that my experience as a rowing athlete at 1996 Olympic Games really is going to help me to understand, you know, whether Altior's ready to race or not, for example. It, certainly as an ex-lightweight rower, I have real empathy with yes. some of the jockeys making weight. I really understand the importance of nutrition, the importance of fitness and all of those sorts of things. I do understand the pressures, sort of mental pressure of uh, competing day in and day out. And, and some empathy with, with trainers in terms of trying to uh, prepare their athletes, and they've got, they've got double, <laughs> double the athletes, I suppose, um, for a big race and how we get there. But how they do that is completely different. How trainers train horses and how Jürgen Grobler, for example, trains the men's eight yeah. for the Olympic Games is a very different process, reliant on some similar things, some similar techniques, but, but actually they're, they're quite different. Horses is, are unique. Is that notion, I mean, when, you're, when you're a professional rower, is that notion of you being fitter, more driven, more pushed to the extremes than almost any mm. other athlete, is that, is that real? Is that true? Or is that just the perception we have from the no, outside? No, it's, it's really real. It is, yeah. it is really real. You're so totally focused. And I think from that perspective, you can compare something like rowing and racing. Mm. Because you know, once you're in the bubble, you are totally sort of blinkered and you know, thinking about what you're doing day to day, you, know, you can almost ignore the outside world to a certain extent. And coming up to an Olympic Games, for example, our athletes will turn off their social media, they will stop sort of engaging with outside influences to a great extent and really just focus on them and their preparation. And their, so, you know, they, they do go into that bubble. And, and racing is, uh, not to say it's a closed sport, mm -hmm. but it is very sort of... Um, sort of inward inward looking almost very very focused on the multiple stakeholders that it's got in preparing and, and doing things because it's a relentless life it goes on and on and I I hadn't appreciated I don't think the relentlessness of the racing yeah. calendar until I'd seen it happening I suppose one of the things I was getting at is that now your board, your your BHA board, is mm. supposed to be more representative of, of the stakeholders and has is, is gone away from being fully in, independent again. If you have representatives from the, the trainers and the owners, mm. not banging their fist on the table, but getting very cross and irate and um, being quite vexed about something, you can sometimes understand why their their focus is mm. narrow but presumably it's your job to then broaden their focus a little bit how how easy do you find that uh, yeah well uh, first first and foremost i say that the, the people on the board are not representative anybody because as a board director mm. they're there for the bha and their fiduciary duty but they're representative the of various they, they are yeah. bringing they're, they're nominated yeah. by their members yeah. so yes yeah, so we have um somebody from the race horse owners association we have luca kamani who's an ex-trainer and their job is to bring their experience of mm -hmm. their past uh, lives and careers to the table to help us to make the right decisions and the best decisions um, from it. But I would say on that also that our independent directors, so-called independent directors, all have a, an interest or a background in racing of some sort. I mean, we have people like Andrew Merriam, is, you know, who's an ex-senior steward of yeah. the Jockey Club, who's an ex-steward um, who brings vast experience as well, who's an owner, breeder, you know... Uh, and it goes, it goes along, you know, all of our independents have some sort of tie into the sport or some interest in the sport. But is it, is it, your, is it your job to try and make them think more, more laterally, perhaps? You talked about the, the insularity of racing in the racing bubble. Um, is it my... Yes, it is, and, and it's the BHAs as well, to, mm -hmm. to keep an eye on the outside. I mean, we've just, you've just been talking to Philip, and... You know, it, we have um, uh, what I think is a very good lobbying group, 
um, uh, compared to other sports that I've seen, who do test the temperature with government and with DCMS and with DEFRA quite often. And we do have people who look outside it. So we do try and keep an eye out both at executive level um, but also at board level. But, but those independents on the board are also working in other industries quite often, so they will also bring that with them as well. And it's surprising, um, you know, how much even those people who are uh, member-nominated directors, if we can call them that, um, do actually then also bring other things with them, because we are there for the broad good of the sport and mm -hmm. so it's collective decision making that we're trying to do. When when you had been in situ for a couple of months what did you think the sport as a whole needed to do better? What really struck you? Um, I think that what I would um, I'd really like to see is us focus a little bit more on talking to each other instead of necessarily always outward to the media when there's something that goes wrong um, I think probably the one thing that I want to focus on is ensuring that uh, people in the sport have the proper representation and the right forum in which to uh -huh. bang the table. Um, uh, and that's to do with the structure and how that's working, and we'll, we're working on that. So just explain that a bit more to me. So, we, so uh, most of our main stakeholders sit around a, a meeting table called the Members Committee. Uh -huh. Um, that meets a few times a year and actually what we really need to do is to make sure that's working properly, that people are properly represented and that we help um, each of those stakeholders to be communicating properly with their membership so that we really do have a, a good channel for communication mm -hmm. um, and that's what I, I think is probably the thing I'd like to see happen most of all because if we can make sure that we're talking to people and they're being heard and we can explain properly the decisions that are being made and why we're making them that has to take us together in the right direction if we do want to move forward as I say we, one of the things we want to do is increase money coming into the sport for example you know we're only going to do that if we work together Luck on Sunday Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.